Welcome back to the Devil Training Institute podcast, everyone. I'm Ross Thorburn, and today we're looking at engaging students and involving students in feedback. My guest today is Professor David Carlos from the University of Hong Kong. So in today's episode, David is going to tell us some practical ways that teachers can get students more involved in feedback. And the feedback that we're talking about today isn't error correction as such. This is feedback on an assignment or feedback on a speech or something like that. So this advice might be, I think, particularly useful for teachers working with students who are getting ready to go into university or, of course, for teacher trainers working on assessed courses. Enjoy the episode. Hi, David. Welcome to the podcast. To begin with, I wanted to ask you about the time that teachers spend writing feedback. I'm sure most of the teachers listening spend much more time writing feedback than their students spend reading it or acting on it. But you said really that needs to be flipped and that students need to spend a lot more time on feedback than teachers do. So tell us a bit more about that. Why do you think that's important? Yes, if we think of the purpose of feedback, obviously it's to try and help the learner to develop, to help the learner to improve. To me, it makes sense that the student needs to put in more work than the teacher. I think we've all experienced relatively frustrating and ineffective forms of feedback where the teacher spends a lot of time marking some books or some papers gives it back to the students and the students maybe have a quick look at the grade and then they just move on. So I think if we want feedback to be useful, we need to design processes in which the students take an active role. They can take a role in peer feedback. They can take a role in evaluation. But if the teacher has spent some time in engaging with student work, then there should be some follow-up activities. So it could be a draft and then reworking and resubmission, or it could be some student reflection. But I think for feedback to fulfill its purposes of enhancing learning, then the students need to do more work than the teacher. So that idea that you mentioned there of students just getting the grade and moving on really reminds me of part of my experience doing my MA TESO program a while ago. And I remember getting some really interesting feedback on my dissertation along with the mark and thinking, wow, what, what a wasted opportunity. If someone had told me this two months ago, then I could have done something about it. But as it is, this feedback really isn't useful for me at all. And I think that kind of points to something that you've written about, which is the way that teachers design assignments can either open up or close down the opportunities for feedback. Can you tell us a bit more about that? How can teachers design assignments which encourage feedback? Of course, in higher education, we get a lot of assignments at the end of a course. Um, and this is a necessity, really, in that in universities, we teach the course and then the assessments can be partly in the middle, but there are always some assessments at the end. And then any comments on these final summative assessments are really going to be too late for students to use. So I think this is a frustration for teachers and a frustration for students. And in some of the research I've done, students have said, well, now the teacher tells me what they wanted. Why didn't they tell me this at the beginning? So 
I think we need to flip the feedback in a sense, and we need more guidance during the course of a module, maybe a bit more interaction if we can find the time and resources for it, and probably a bit less at the end. One of my messages and some of my work is actually teachers should probably spend less time on this kind of summative marking and grading. That isn't really feedback. Feedback is information that students can use to improve. So can we arrange the limited time we have so that more of the processes can be sharing guidance, maybe oral interaction, maybe students sharing their work in progress, and then correspondingly a bit less at the end when it's kind of done and dusted. I think that idea of students wanting to know at the beginning of an assignment what's expected of them is a really interesting point. You know, a lot of the time, I guess, we have students working on things where they have this, only this fuzzy idea of what's actually expected of them. And I know a way of getting around that is using positive examples, sometimes called exemplars, as a way of getting students to understand what they need to do. Can you tell us about why exemplars are useful and how can teachers use them effectively? I think exemplars or samples of previous work are one of the fundamental ways in which human beings learn. If you remember when you're in primary school and the first time the teacher asks you to write a poem or a short story, they will have shown some examples to stimulate your thinking. For anybody who's embarking on a doctoral thesis, one of the first things we always do is we look at some other examples of doctoral thesis to see what it looks like, how long it is, how many chapters there are, what do you do in every chapter. So I think exemplars are a fundamental way of learning. But there are some pitfalls and dangers. We don't want them to be seen as a model. We don't want them to be seen as something to be copied. But we want them to be seen as something that can stimulate a learner to think further about how they can improve their own work. So I think one nice design is when students produce a draft or an outline, and then they are exposed to several exemplars of different quality. There could be one or two very good to excellent ones. There could be one or two not so good ones. And then I think one activity is for the learners to critique and evaluate the different exemplars. They could, for example, put them into a rank order, which one is best, which one is worse, and why. They could have a discussion around the different features of quality manifested in the exemplars. And I think this is important because whatever field of study we're involved in, we need to get a sense of what quality looks like. Now, you and I are are in a field where we do a lot of oral presentations. So we need to get a sense of what is a good oral presentation. Learners often need to do oral presentations. So they need to tease out the features or qualities of a good oral presentation, an excellent oral presentation, a not-so-good oral presentation. And it's the same with other genres. A good story, a good piece of reflective writing, a good argumentative piece. And I think exemplars of different qualities are one of the ways in which we try to teach students the nature of quality 
in their discipline or in their field of study. So that's really interesting because what I've tended to do on teacher training courses where teachers need to write an assignment is I often get the teachers to start off uh, before the assignment by looking at an example from a previous course, a really good example usually, and then leaving comments on that example based on the marking criteria. And then we have a bit of a discussion around that. And I think through that discussion, the criteria and what trainees are expected to do becomes a lot more clear. But what you said there was that you'd usually get students to do a draft first before showing them any examples. So what's the rationale behind that? Is that to avoid students using the examples as a a model or just something to to copy from? Yes, that's one of the reasons. When I started out using exemplars in my university classes, and perhaps I should first say that one of the reasons I started using exemplars is students would invariably ask for them. If I was setting an assignment, sometimes students would say, well, I understand vaguely what you're talking about, but it would be much more concrete if I could actually see some samples. Now, when I started using exemplars, I followed the strategy that you just hinted at. I thought exemplars would be useful to clarify expectations. So I sometimes shared two because sometimes sharing three or four can be quite time consuming. But if you only share one, there's a big danger that students see that as the model answer. So I would often share two of different qualities and different characteristics. But as I got into it a little bit more detail and I ran a project with some of my colleagues using exemplars and several of my colleagues made quite a persuasive argument, and I've also seen support from this in the literature, that it works better if you get students to engage first because this is cognitively more rich for them. And also it slightly tackles the model answer and shall I copy the exemplar problem. So getting students to produce at least an outline, if not a partial draft. And then when you expose them to the exemplar, they can actually use the exemplars as a kind of feedback mechanism. They can compare and contrast their own work, their own draft, with the exemplars. And I think this process is quite powerful. And again, if I come back to my example of a doctoral thesis, when I looked at some examples of a doctoral thesis at the outset, I can derive some insights. But later on in the process, when I revisit these doctoral theses. And I've already drafted my own section. So say I've written about the limitations of my thesis or the limitations of my research method. So I've got a few ideas of mine. And then I compare and contrast what I've written with what other authors have written. I think this actually enhances the thinking process. So I feel that making comparisons between one's own work and exemplars is quite a powerful learning process. We naturally do this. I think we often learn presentation strategies, teaching strategies, research strategies through seeing what somebody else is doing and then comparing and contrasting our own strategies. And I think it's the same with peer observation. I've sometimes gone into classrooms of my uh, colleagues and they've come into my classes 
And sometimes they say something interesting about my teaching, and sometimes they just say, oh, David, your teaching is pretty good. Thanks very much. But sometimes when I see how other people are doing things, I, I can gain significant insights from my own teaching. So I think this process of comparison can be leveraged by teachers, and I, I think it's potentially powerful. I suppose what's really interesting in your examples there, David, is that what people learn can be very individual. And obviously, if you and I both go to watch the same teacher, teach a lesson as part of peer observation, we could come out of the room and find that we've learned totally different things from that process. And I suppose that's also interesting to think about with getting the students to look at examples is that different students will learn different things from the same example, which I suppose is good in some ways, although I'm sure some teachers might worry that the learners wouldn't be learning the things that the teacher wanted them to learn or, or focus on. That's an interesting point. Should it be that teachers have a pre-designed focus on what they want the learners to learn, or should we actually be enabling learners to learn what they would like to learn? And I think sometimes this can be a problem in teaching, that the teacher has a kind of syllabus and a pre-designed focus, but that doesn't always match with what the learner wants to learn and is ready to learn. So maybe there has to be a negotiation and a process. I wouldn't like to go down a line where there is too much anarchy and students are just doing what they want to do. But I, I think students will only learn what they are ready to learn and what they are primed to learn, and to some extent what they want to learn. But the idea of students as partners and negotiated learning, I think, plays a role in feedback. I think it plays a role in assessment for learning. And I think it's, it has some potential if it can be managed well. But with all these ideas, the devil is in the detail and, and students need to understand what they're doing and why, but to feel their voices are respected and they can make a contribution to not only the way that course is organized, but their own roles in the classroom. And I think teaching can be more stimulating both for students and teachers in this kind of environment. One more time, everyone. That was David Carlos. For more from David, check out his recent book, co-written with Naomi Winston, Designing Effective Feedback Processes in Higher Education. And also follow David on Twitter. You can find him at Carless, that's C-A-R-L-E-S-S, David. For more podcasts from us, don't forget to check out our website, www.tefeltraininginstitute.com. And if you'd like to support the show, you can either click on the link in the show notes to buy us a coffee, leave us a good review wherever you listen, or simply share the show with a friend. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you again next time.